Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Arthur Smith. Now, Arthur Smith is uh, the author of the new book, Reach Hard Lessons and Learn Truths from a Lifetime in Television. Uh, and I'm really excited to have Mr. Smith on today because he uh, has been at the forefront of a real revolution in television over these last uh, decades now. I mean, you you have a real storied career here starting uh, at the, the CBC working working uh, on up uh, through through I don't know network TV in the states uh, the the introduction of Fox Sports Net all sorts of stuff but then uh, of course the founding of your company um, uh, a Smith and Co which I uh, recognize it's funny I when I started reading the book I was like I recognized that label uh, from many things uh, kitchen nightmares uh, the big is the big one for me because I'm a huge Gordon Ramsay fan. Um, but also uh, all sorts of stuff. American Ninja Warrior, which just had its 15th season uh, start uh, this this Monday. Where it's it's out there. People can check that out. Uh, but I'm rambling here. I, I'm talking more than I like to just uh, because I, I'm, I'm so excited. Uh, Mr. Smith, thank you for being on the show today. My pleasure, Sonny. And uh, I'm looking forward to this. So, uh, as I said, you were at really at the forefront of uh, a, a real revolution in in television production. Um, but you start your book uh, in an interesting way, which is to say that you don't like how that revolution is often described. Um, I, can you explain to folks why you don't like the term reality TV? Well, I think when people talk about reality TV, I think uh, they all define it differently. You know, depending on the person. So. Often, when people think of reality television, they often think of the trashiest form of reality television that's out there, and not about the mainstream television that's out there. And so for me, if I, if I had to define reality to television, I would define it in two genres, or, or two subgenres, really, I should say. One being the unstructured reality television, which the real world was the pioneer and started and which became Real Housewives, which became the Kardashians, which are the docu-soaps or the docu-follows. And then the other category would be the structured reality. And that would be um, the formatted shows like Mark Burnett's Survivor, which led to Hell's Kitchen and The Apprentice. And But I feel like there's a whole bunch of programming that I don't really classify as reality television. And the best term that I can come up with is nonfiction television. And that, to me, is shows like American Idol, which is not really a reality show. It's a variety show. And, you know, people can refer to Let's Make a, a Deal or No Deal, I should say, as, as a reality show. It's a game show. Game shows have been around for 50 years. Let's give game shows respect. Let's give that genre respect. So, um, you know, so I think they're in within reality television, I really think there's the, the real world you know, tree, basically. And then I think there's a survivor tree and then things that flow out from that. And everything else to me belongs in the genres in which they were designed, whether it's a sports entertainment show like American Ninja Warrior, whether it's uh, a music series or variety series like American Idol, whether it's a game show, just call things for what they are. So, um, but it's, you know, it's really funny because over the years, there is some negativity to the world reality television because when it first started, it, it, you know, it had this connotation. And yes, there still exists trashiest reality television. But, you know, I get concerned when people like lump it all in one way. And a lot of times people will say, oh, I don't watch reality television. And then I'll start to list Shark Tank and The Voice and, and all these things that have 
now become part of the genre. And they go, oh, I watched that. And I go, okay. And then, you know, sometimes, sometimes people call it alternative television. And it's not, that's not it either because, hey, look at, let's look at the top 10 shows on television. They're not alternative. They're mainstream television. So, um, so that's why I get like, you know, I've learned to not like the term reality television. And, and by the way, if you look at executives' business cards at NBC, ABC, Fox, Netflix, None of them are the vice presidents of reality television. Mm-hmm. They're all vice presidents of unscripted programming, vice presidents of alternative programming, vice president of nonfiction. So even they don't like it. So let's, <laughs> let, let's, just, let's just go for, but it's fine. It's fine. I, I accept it. You know, my name has been associated with reality television. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. But I got to tell you, I know I'm rambling, but I got to tell you, the interesting, the interesting thing was that you know, before I started my company 23 years ago, I was at Fox Sports. I had a great job at Fox Sports. Now, I've been, an, I've been a sports guy. I've been an entertainment guy. You know, I got started very young as a producer in sports. And somehow, which is all written in the book, Reach, that's, that's, that's coming out or that's already out. It's been out for about a week now. Um, but um, that, you know, I, I um, sorry, got, lost my train of thought. I went back to Canada for a second. <laughs> so when I was, you know, somehow I became head of CBC Sports when I was quite, quite young. I was in my 20s. And Dick Clark had moved me to LA. And that's a whole other story. Got me my green card. And then eventually I made my way back into sports. Not intentionally. It was just the way my life worked out. I actually moved to LA, never thinking I'd work in sports again. But anyway, I went back to, uh, I went back to sports and I was at Fox Sports. And I, I got to a point where I was missing the entertainment side and missing the variety side. And I, and I knew one day I wanted to start up my own company because I love everything. I love television so much. and. Um, and, you know, I had this long-term deal at Fox Sports. And I took the biggest reach, biggest reach of my life and started my production company. And I had, you know, a wife and two young daughters. And um, I had this great job at Fox Sports that paid very well. And, and I had, you know, security and everything else. And I left for my dream, really, uh, with no income <laughs> or nothing on the horizon. And at that time, the year 2000, there wasn't much reality television on or what mm-hmm. is now called reality television. So I, I went to set up a company that was going to be a nonfiction company that was going to be everything that, that I had done, which was variety shows, award shows, music shows, clip shows, entertain, what, what, what would have been referred to as light entertainment shows. I mean, I was doing a show called When Stars Were Kids at Dick Clark long before people called it reality television, I suppose they would call it now. So, um, so my timing turned out to be pretty good. I was, I, I was kind of lucky because a year and a half into my company, I was doing my, my first big uh, primetime network series was Paradise Hotel, uh, which was a, a big win for Fox um, in the summer of 2000 and 2003, maybe a little bit ahead of its time because it was so sexy that the advertisers wouldn't buy in and it didn't come back for a second season. And of course, Love Island and um, Bachelor in Paradise, I mean, very similar to Paradise Hotel. (laughs) I'm just saying it's very similar. So anyhow, we were ahead of our time, but we had a great run that summer and and, and it really started a a long... uh, 
still going uh, business with with Fox. You know, Fox has always been one of our big clients, but we work for everybody. We've worked for 50 networks. So I love my I love my friends at all the networks. Yeah. Well, I mean, American Ninja Warrior, of course, uh, is on NBC. And there's a great there's actually a great story in your book about how that show started, uh, started at, you know, kind of a smaller cable network, G4, which is kind of struggling. They had the show that a lot of people for them were watching, but they weren't uh, entirely sure what to do with. <laughs> Uh, and 15 years later, it's, you know, a cornerstone of the NBC uh, lineup still, still the, the primetime lineup. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy when I think back and, and, and you know, um, yeah, I mean, I was happy to have a single, like not a home run with, a, with, with G4. And, and uh, you're right. Um, at the time, one of my colleagues from Fox Sports, one of former colleagues from Fox Sports, Neil Tiles, is running G4. And he had this show called Sasuke from Japan, which was the only thing really getting a rating on his network. And he called me and he goes, maybe there's an American version of it. And I, and I said, let me see the tape. And I watched it. And what got me right away was the people who ran the course were plumbers, dental hygienists, teachers. And they usually failed. And it was a celebration of the attempt. And when I saw that, I, I thought of like my years doing Olympic Games. I did three Olympic Games and, and, um, and all the, you know, those profiles, the up and close profiles that you do when you're doing Olympics where you get vested in people's story and then you watch them in a sport that you only watch every four years. And I said, if we can make people care about the people who run this course, then I think we have something. Never, ever thinking that we were going to end up on NBC. I mean, that was not what I, I was saying. How could I even think about it? We were, I had to deal with G4. The only reason it happened that it ended up on NBC was luck. Comcast, which owned G4E, bought NBC Universal. And we, Neil and I, went to NBC and said, hey, would you mind? Could you, could you just put, in our, put on our finale as an act of synergy to throw a spotlight on the show on G4? never ever thinking that we'd end up on NBC. Why would we think that? So I knew we had a good show. I figured I knew the reach was more than just G4 viewers, but it's a G4 show. But the show did so well that NBC called and, um, and said, hey, maybe we should do some more. As it turned out, it was on a night that Hell's Kitchen was on. So Hell's, <laughs> we had Hell's Kitchen on Fox and Ninja Warrior on NBC. And Hell's Kitchen ran 8 to 10 and Ninja ran 9 to 11. and um, I wasn't worried about Hells because Hells was already like, you know, one of the highest rated shows. And uh, so Hells won the eight o'clock hour. Ninja came in second to Hells at the nine o'clock hour. But Ninja won the 10 o'clock hour when it was on, not against Hells Kitchen. And Paul Telegdi, who was running uh, NBC, you know, the unscripted division. I, I, I've got to choose my <laughs> words carefully now, now all that I've said. And he, he, he said, uh, Mr. Monday Night, you just won every time period. And I said, oh. And I said, so Ninja did well. He goes, yeah, no, it did really well. He goes, maybe we should do more. And Paul had the foresight to see that there was something more, that this was really a broader show. And then we did more, and then eventually NBC took it. But had Comcast not bought NBC, Universal, this would have never happened. And if we would have pitched an obstacle course show to NBC, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think they would have bought it. 
But you well, know, and, and like, an obstacle course show where most people fail, as you say. I mean, yes. the, you know, that's one of the fascinating things about American Ninja Warrior is that it is a it's a show that you just watch people try and most of them don't make it. And that's fine. People people are still very excited and into it. How do you so when you're looking at a show like this, you know, Hell's Kitchen has a winner at the end of the year. Hell's Kitchen, you know, it's a elimination competition show at the end of the year. There's a winner. Um, at the end of each night, there's a winner. There's, you know, somebody wins in the kitchen, somebody somebody yeah. loses, and somebody gets sent home. Um, and it's it's you know a pretty straightforward competition show. But when you're when you were like sitting down and thinking, okay, how do we make something like this that appeals to uh, that's going to appeal to the the bride the broadest swath of people possible? Um, what are you looking for from from just a producer standpoint? What are you thinking and and sitting here and saying, well, it needs this element. This doesn't necessarily work. This is what we're looking for. Well, you know, all through my life, and maybe it's because I'm surrounded by women. I have two daughters. I was grew up with two older sisters. I'm a very sensitive person. So I, I always like television that makes me feel something. You know, when I was doing sports, I was always about, I love doing the game. I'm a big sports fan. But I really like more the storylines. And I like really more the setup. And, 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 and the openings and the, the packages we did about the athletes. And so I'm always after television that makes you feel something. And as Ninja has proven out, you don't need a winner. You just need to care. You need to care about these people. So, so much energy goes into those packages and those pieces that Saturday Night Live has made fun of. God bless them. I appreciate, appreciate it. Um, but, but, you know, because I, I, I – I believe that the charm of Ninja is that we do celebrate the attempt. And, and it's the only athletic competition that I know where the athletes root for each other. It's very anti-American. It's, <laughs> it's the only athletic competition where there is no winner. It's the only athletic competition where men and women compete on the same obstacle course. It's, there's no, it's not changed for the women. And, and I love all that. And I think it's, you know, there's a ton of positive messaging. And it's become a broad family show. I hear this all the time from people that it is the show I sit down and watch with my family. And, and ninjas come in all shapes and sizes and colors and genders. And I mean, it's just, it's for everybody. And, um, and you, you know, you may, most people aren't going to um, be a quarterback in the Super Bowl or sink a putt at the Masters, but Ninja is the show for, for everybody. And yes, we do have our elite ninjas who are amazing and phenomenal and it's incredible how good they got. The other interesting thing that's happened with Ninja, this is like, who could see this one coming, is that it's a sport now. It's an actual sport that people, kids now say, I'm not playing soccer, I'm doing Ninja. And that's, that's kind of crazy. And there's Ninja gyms all over the country, and there's Ninja birthday parties, and et cetera, et cetera. So this was a little show from Japan. And by the way, when we took it over, I mean, I mean, the Japanese rights holder, they like us a lot because we took their little show and now the American show is seen in 100 countries and there's 20 or so local versions of Ninja Warrior UK, Ninja Warrior Australia and stuff like that. But it's been such a pleasure. And for me, who's a guy who couldn't make up his mind whether you want to work in sports or entertainment, I get to do both in this one show. And, and that's, that's amazing. You mentioned you mentioned the the uh, the rights holder the original rights holder uh, in Japan yeah. 
And I, I'd like to talk a little bit about this again. This is, you know, it's a it's a business of Hollywood show, and I I, I want to help people understand how this works. So, mm-hmm. you know, with a show like uh, American Ninja Warrior, there was a an original Japanese uh, version, or I believe American Idol, same kind of thing, right? The mm-hmm. the yeah, um, there was pop a British idol. British pop idol show, uh, yeah. or Kitchen Nightmares, which which actually had a very different form um, when it when it showed in England. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that works, just how the finances of that works. Um, and, and I'm going to lead into this, but, uh, and how this kind of led you, uh, to, uh, kind of want to develop your own show that could then be sold around the world in, in similar fashion, because, you know, the billion dollar hit is the show that you can sell to a hundred countries. Correct. Um, Correct. the, you know, you, you make, you, I'm sure you guys do okay on American Ninja <laughs> Warrior from pro- producers yeah. fees and all that, but it's, it is, you know, the, the real, pot of gold is creating the syndicated worldwide thing. Sure. So, I mean, listen, you know, it's funny. When I first came to America 30-something years ago, and I was coming from Canada, it was a little bit like coming from Mars, like from another planet. Because at the time, American buyers were really only focused on things that were happening in the U.S., developed by American producers. And then along came... Survivor, which was based on uh, foreign format, and Big Brother, and and a number of other things, Hell's Kitchen, which was based on another completely different show, but based on one. And they saw the power in these formats that that things that did well in the Netherlands or Israel or somewhere else or Pop Idol for for the UK example could do well in the United States, and so. It actually, in some ways, um, there was a period of time where people only people were only buying formats from international. It was like, what? You can't we can't create something in America, but that's changed. Now I think we're all we're like, we're this global village now where ideas get exchanged and it's all good and everybody you know can be created here and sold there and vice versa and and, and it happens you know happens that way. So for us, when when Neil you know when uh, Going back to Ninja Warrior, what happened was, is yes, there was a Japanese rights holder, um, but you know we welcomed the challenge. And as producers, sometimes you own things and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you make a deal to own part of it, <laughs> um, what we call back-end rights, and you split it with them. So there's, depending on what the project is, depending on the success of it, depending on the timing, the network, et cetera, you know, there is a negotiation that goes on. Of course, it's much better if you own everything. So, uh, but I, I'm in the business of producing hits. I'm in the producing of, 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 that's, you know, that's what I'm all about. So I'm, I'm good with wherever it comes from, as long as I, I feel confident that I, that I can make it a hit. And the first time I saw Ninja Warrior, I said, there's something here. So I, I really believed it right away. Um, I never anticipated it, like I said, being a network series, but I did see something special about the show. And I was, I was excited about about doing it. Um, not necessarily the same thing happened when I heard of Gordon Ramsay <laughs> and Hell's Kitchen uh, because I was not a foodie. And at the time in 2004, uh, or two, yeah, 2004, food in America was in a much different place than it is today. We've evolved. We have mm. definitely evolved as a, as a nation in terms of what our tastes are and what we eat and, and our acceptance of other cuisines. And we become a nation of foodies. And social media has a lot to do with that as well. So the first time I had 
I had heard I, uh, Mike Dornell at Fox, who was running the alternative reality, unscripted nonfiction, I'm going to use every word, at Fox, <laughs> said, uh, said to me, um, he called me and he said, um, so uh, there's this guy in the UK, his name is Gordon Ramsay. I said, who's that? He's a chef. Oh, okay. He's a Michelin star chef. Uh-huh. And uh, anyhow, he does the show called Hell's Kitchen in the UK. And um, I'm not sure about the show, but you should, you should watch the tape. And I go, Mike, it's a food show on network television. I mean, it, it doesn't work. You know, Mark Burnett tried the restaurant, had a couple of seasons. There's never really been a successful network, broadcast network food show. I said, I, 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 it's, my knee-jerk reaction is, I, I, don't, I don't get it. But Mike Durnell was a good buyer. And like I said, if he would have asked me to watch a fire log burning, I would watch it just because he was Mike and I would do anything for him. And uh, anyhow, I watched the tape and I immediately uh, was mesmerized by Gordon. I did not like the show. I was, I was, it, I, it was a show with celebrities. It was a very different show than what we did. And it was, it was lost, two days live and live to tape and it was slow. But I liked the title and I liked Gordon. And I went to Mike and I said, I like the title like Gordon. I said, if we do this, we have to make it broad and we have to make something aspirational. And, you know, and then I went on with this thing and I said, you know, we're going to have two, 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 uh, two kitchens and two teams and, you know, Gordon will be the taskmaster and we'll introduce Gordon to American audiences and et cetera, et cetera. And I began to describe what is now Hell's Kitchen. And Mike was amazing and supportive and everything else like that. And we built a restaurant. It's crazy. We built a restaurant. And, and we shot this thing and, and, you know, I was making a, sh I was making a show for me because I wanted to, I wanted to make sure that it reached a broad audience and, and you don't have to, you know, sometimes people say, oh, it's a, I love your food show. And I go, it's not really a, yes, it's a food show, but it's not really a food show. It's a show about aspirations, about people living their dream, about working with the greatest, you know, the greatest person in that field, the goat of cooking. And, 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 and how they work for it and, you know, um, and how admirable they are. And, um, and I said, that's so you don't really have to be a foodie to enjoy the show. Now, you, foodies will enjoy the show, but you don't have to be. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, we finished the show and the show at the time was so different than anything else. It sat on the shelf for six months. You know, Fox had it on the shelf for six months and we were, uh, we were, they were very nervous. It was funny. We were talking about the evolution of the genre, but around 2004, 2005, it was the beginning of a lot of failures in the genre. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because at the first, there was this whole novelty to the genre. But around 2004, 2005, and Mike, who was like a hit maker, he also had a couple of misses, which was very rare for Mike. But everybody was missing. And then all of a sudden, here we go. The genre is dead. This reality thing is a fad. It's over. And so Fox was very nervous about Gordon and the show because there had never been anyone like Gordon on television and there had never been a show like this on television. And so it sat there and I was like, put it on. I know it's good. I know it's good. And then eventually they said, okay, and you're, we're putting you on next Monday or whatever, a few Mondays from now, whatever it was. And it was Memorial Day. I said, oh, oh thank you for that. Thank you for the long <laughs> Monday launch. And that, that's, that's you're really giving me a great start. Anyhow, the show, did a, the show did really well in spite of Big Monday and then didn't lose a time period for, I don't know, four seasons. It never did. And, and in its third season was the number one show of all shows on television. Hell's Kitchen at the time was ahead of America's Got Talent. And um, so 
Um, yeah, no, sometimes you have to be uh, convinced. But, you know, it's funny. We're talking about, we just talked about American Ninja Warrior and Hell's Kitchen. Both of those were reaches. You know, going back to the book, both of those were reaches. They were like, at the time, you know, the whole ninja story is a reach and Hell's was a reach. And, 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 and you know, in terms of, you know, the timing and everything else like that. And it's funny when I think of, we were talking about the evolution of food. When I think about shows like Hell's Kitchen, which is, we've done, we've produced our 22nd season. It's not on, it's 22nd season hasn't aired yet. It'll air soon on Fox. And uh, Top Chef, which 20th, 20 seasons of Top Chef. And everything that's going on in social media, all these components, I think, are contributors to what has happened to food in this country. And um, so it's, uh, it's nice to see. And, and by yeah, the way, I, I'm, a, I'm a foodie now. I am a foodie now. <laughs> Well, I, you 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 wrote in you write in your book about how uh, Gordon Ramsay was a little bit skeptical of you at first. Uh, oh, you yeah. know, he he was not sold on you necessarily as the guy to make this show. No, no, he. Um, there was a point when I was talking and and rambling like I'm doing now and telling him about all the things that I thought the show would be, and he just looked at me and he says, "You," in, in Gordon's charming way, I'll I'll leave out a few f bombs. He just said, "You know absolutely nothing about food." Right. And I go, How do, what do you say to that? And I just said, I do know something about making television and you're going to teach me and we're going to work together. And, he, you know, he's so great. He gave me a high, like he gave me a high five right after that. But, you know, it's just it was just part of Gordon's charm. Like he'll, he'll challenge you. I mean, he challenges you. He's a perfectionist. He's he's an amazing, amazing human being. And uh, we sat down and I, I said to him, whatever we do is going to be purposeful. We're not, you know, yes, I'm a showman, but I'm not going to do anything that doesn't you know, fall into the criteria of what a great chef would be. So I said, let's just talk it out. Let's, let's go through it. And we literally sat there and said, what makes a great chef? And you go, leadership, creativity, palate. And we listened. I said, I guarantee you every challenge. There may be a little show before we get to the challenge, but once we get to the challenge, it's going to be testing that. And we may do the challenge in an interesting way, but it will test those things. And it's a real, you know, when you're on the set of Hell's Kitchen, it's, it's a real restaurant. The cameras, it's, it's our Truman show. We have 80 cameras, 73 uh, robotics, seven handheld. The, the producers are never seen. You know, it's really Gordon in this world with these chefs. And that way, it bec- you know, I wanted the most authentic competition that we could possibly have. And, and the chefs who come there, it's funny how I talked about Ninja, how it evolved into the real world. And with Hell's, Chefs have it on their resume that they were on Hell's Kitchen season seven or season nine. It's, it, it is school. We don't show as much of the training that actually happens. It's mm. not a miracle that they get better. They get better because there are times when Gordon will come to me and he goes, hey, you got to leave us alone for four hours. We're working today training. I said, okay, we're, we, we're following you. And, and he wants them to get better. His, you know, his intentions are... Even though it's a television show, Gordon is still the same person. He's still this great chef who wants other people to raise their game, and and uh, and he's great at it. Well, I mean, Hell's Kitchen in particular feels like, I mean, it feels almost like the TV version of your of your concept of reaching, right? Like you have a bunch of people who, if we're being totally honest, probably don't deserve to be in the kitchen with Gordon Ramsay at least when they start. Like they're mm-hmm. they're not they're not completely inexperienced, but they're also you know. Not necessarily 
uh, Michelin Master starred chefs. chefs. Yeah. Yep. Um, and and through through the show, they learn, they get better. Uh, they create they create opportunities for themselves and and everybody else. Which leads me to I, I, I you know, I feel bad because I haven't actually asked you to talk about your, your book here as much as I should have. I'm asking you to tell stories from your book. But your your book is about this idea of uh, of of taking a um, taking taking a chance on yourself and and reaching for something better. Tell tell folks uh, about your book and kind of why you wanted to write it to, yeah. to let folks know how 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 to better their situations. Well, you know, I. I have been thinking about writing this book for 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 some time, but I got I've been busy, so I've uh, but there was there was I suppose I was kind of subconsciously writing it for four or five years because when I sat down to write it I couldn't stop, and the first weekend uh, I wrote eighty five pages in a weekend and I slept two hours on a, over a Saturday night. My wife thought I was out of my mind. I came out of sun, Sunday night. I walked out of the room with my hair standing up and like. With this crazed look on my face, unshaven, and what what is wrong with you? And I started to read, and she goes, "What is this?" And I go, "I think it's a book." And um, and then as then a writer, finished... we've all been there. I can I can assure you that's a that's a that's a that's a regular face that our wives uh, or spouses see. Yeah, you know the look. You know that look. So um, and and I realized that you know, um, listen, I wanted to write a a a, a book that that did some that did some good that had some positive messaging. And um, so I say that it's a memoir with a purpose, and the purpose is to show the power of reach. When you reach, you find out what you're capable of. When you reach, you, you learn the difference between a, a pipe dream and what you haven't dared to try just yet. And I believe we make our good fortune. I believe that we have to put ourselves out there. Now, you can get lucky. And things can happen to you, but I think you need to step forward. Everything that's ever happened to me, most of the things that happened to me, I should be careful. Most of the things that happened to me is because I I put my neck out, I stepped forward. My my first break at CBC Sports was because I did something really ignorant. The story you read about in the book, but I did something really ignorant that turned out to be something by stalking an executive, which you, you shouldn't do. You should never do that. <laughs> but I, but I didn't know any better, and I did. But I but I was reaching, you know. When I produced the Olympics at 24, I was reaching. When I became head of CBC Sports, all the things that have happened to me and, and moving to LA to work with Dick Clark, I, I'd spent all my life in sports and I was going to go produce entertainment shows and award shows. I was reaching again. I've talked about the reach from Fox Sports when I had a secure job, but I knew I wanted to do other things. And you know, I was just hoping to make a living because I was you know, starting a company with no, no income in sight. So. And it all started for me when I was quite young, and I'm grateful that I had this moment. I didn't know what that moment was until I started writing the book. And I realized that something happened to me when I was very young, nine years old, that something happened to me that changed my life. It subconsciously taught me that when I put myself out there, I at least put myself, you know, gave myself a chance to accomplish something and have success. And I would have never known that. In that particular situation, I was forced to forced to go. I, I was forced to put myself out there. So, from that thing on, and the readers will have to read that story. We're going to tease something. We're not going to do the whole book. <laughs> okay. But but you know, uh, but, you know, it 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 changed it changed the course of my life. And then I became this person. I grew up as the shyest. I, hard to believe, Sonny. I know because I haven't shut up. But I grew up as the shyest kid, like extremely shy. 
And my parents were actually worried about me. And we moved from one neighborhood to another, and it kind of like rocked my world and was traumatizing for me. And um, so this shift in who I was as a person changed when I was nine years old. And, and um, like I said, it was an incident, but I didn't, you're nine years old, you're not thinking of things like that. But when I, when I take every step and I just, just put my life in rewind and I look back and I say, well, how did this all happen? How did I become this guy who, who's always reaching and always trying and everything else like that? And, and it goes back to that. It really does. And, uh, and I, I can see the through line of it. And, you know, I am so grateful for, for the life that I have. And I grew up with a father who was the, the greatest man I'll know, the greatest man I'll ever know, who was big message to me was gratitude. And, and he, he, was, he was amazing. He was grateful for everything. He woke up happy, went to bed happy, was very funny, and, and just, just an amazing father. And, um, and you know, um, so, so I, 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 I'm always trying to think about things that I could do. In this chapter of my life, I want to mentor more. I want to work more. It's the great thing about having a production company is I work with a lot of young people. And, and, and we've seen a lot of young people go from runner to producer and executive producer. Some of them go on the other side to become a network buyer who used to work for us. We've been doing it for 23 years. And in the unscripted business, we're one of the older companies. And I get so much joy from that. I realize that so much of my joy during the course of the day is usually when, there's a, when I'm involved in some mentoring, working with, and, um, and so I consider this chapter kind of a new chapter in my life. I'm still continuing to make shows and everything like that, but I really wanted to do that. Further to that, all the proceeds from the, from the book are going to the REACH Foundation, which I set up um, a, you know, a few weeks ago. Um, and the REACH Foundation is, is a, is a um, charitable organization. <laughs> that donates money to a number of charities. All, all of those charities um, lift people up in some way so that they can reach in their own lives. And so, um, so when you're buying the book, you're doing a good thing. You're giving money to charity, which is good. But you're also getting some really good stories. But, but, I, but I did it because, you know, like I said, and the other thing, and, and not to, not, you know, sorry for this, but not, not to leave my mom out, because one of the things I, I believe in and is that it's much easier to reach when you're reaching from a strong foundation. And that's so important in anything that you do. And for me, it was my parents. And uh, I had great parents, and uh, they were supportive uh, in spite of their crazy youngest child. And, um, and, and that, that, goes a, that goes a long way. Now, I was blessed with great parents. Not everybody has that. But that doesn't mean you can't build your foundation based on something else, whether it's friends, whether it's siblings or whatever. But we all, it is much easier. You know, that I, I talk about, you know, the, the, um, you know, if you're standing on a sturdy table <laughs> and you're reaching for something, it's much easier to reach when you're standing on a wobbly table because, you know, it's, it's much harder to do that. And so that's, you know, it's not impossible. It's just harder. Yeah. Yeah. It, again, the, the, the book, uh, the title is Reach. Arthur Smith, you, you find it Amazon, everywhere else. Uh, books are sold. There, there are a bunch of great stories in here. I, we won't tell them all. As you say, you want to <laughs> leave some leave some for the folks, but you know, uh, going to a basketball game with magic Johnson, uh, in a very, very unique, uh, looking for a very unique ask. Again, I won't, I won't spoil the ask here. Uh, that was, uh, that that's a great story. Um, all sorts of stuff there. There was, there was one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit because again, it gets kind of to the business of Hollywood and where things are. 
um, in this in this incredibly diverse, fractured media landscape. Uh, there there was one meeting, and it's it's a really short part of your book, uh, so I don't feel like I'm spoiling too much here. Okay. But there was a there's a this moment where you're uh, you're 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 uh, Taking over at, uh, I guess, starting Fox Sports, uh, the the Fox Sports Net, um, and talking uh, about how to kind of capture the audience. And Rupert Murdoch, who obviously is, you know, head of Fox and, you know, owns newspapers and media companies, news organizations, is talking about uh, uh, the importance of football as a singular thing that people will come to. I mean, I, I'm I'm fascinated to get your perspective on this as somebody who has kind of again lived through this huge evolution and whose beginning was in sports. Really, I mean, you are you're a sports guy first, uh, and and we have seen the landscape fracture into a billion different channels, and yet there are still the NFL. There's the Olympics, you know. Um, even there's Major League Baseball, NBA, whatever. But you have these big focal points. Is that the future of a successful network media company? Or are those two starting to fracture in ways that people didn't quite expect? Um, sports is in a whole other category and football for that matter is in a whole other category. So um, uh, Rupert, Rupert had tremendous foresight and, and uh, you know, even it, way back in the nineties, you know, when he acquired the rights to the NFL and overbid, in quotations, because he didn't really. Um, everybody, he, he outbid CBS by three or $400 million. Everybody thought he was crazy and was going to lose money. As it turned out, he made a ton of money because the asset value of his stations, the Fox stations, grew tremendously. And he built the Fox network on the back of that. So um, that was brilliant but he also said that in a, in a in a day and age uh somewhere down the road there will be 500 channels there will be all this and football will still have the same audience and he's right the super bowl this year was the second or third highest rated super bowl of all time and um and in spite of all this fragmentation it cuts through and Part of it is the live. Part of it is still a, you know, people are longing for that gathering together and sports provides that. Um, and I think every broadcast network um, has to be in live sports to a degree. Um, and most of them are in football. Let's think about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, CBS, ABC, NBC, Fox, they all have football. Yeah. Um, and there's a reason for that. The highest rated show on network television every year is Sunday Night Football. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I think that, you, you know, some of this you can't just create and say, oh, we're going to do everything live and it's going to work. And uh, but there are certain things that that I know um, you want to build a show on network television that creates buzz that people are talking about, that people watch, you know, on that night. And, you know, certain shows can do that. And, and I believe that that's that's where they need to focus, that you, you create programming that is so good that it becomes a week-to-week -week watch because that's still the business that you're in. And it's difficult. It's extremely difficult because we've all become network programmers. We program what we want to watch. We sit there, you know, when I was little, <laughs> I would go through the TV guide, you know, when I get it at the beginning of the week, and I would chart out what I was going to watch. And it was like 
how am I going to do this? How am I going to watch this if it's on that time? Or what? Like, and I had to, I had to make tough decisions. And in spite of my, you know, spreadsheets and everything else like that, you know. Um, and then, then thankfully, when the greatest gift my wife has ever gotten me in 35 years of marriage was TiVo. It was the best <laughs> gift I ever got for like a TV holic. Yes, I'm Arthur Smith, and I'm a TV holic. And so, you know, that was the greatest. That was the greatest gift she, you know, she um, she gave me. And but I think now with 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 streaming and binging and programming being available, we all program our own networks. You know, so it's a it's it's a tough battle for the networks. It's a tough battle, but I still believe that there's, you know, um, there you just have to work harder at it, and you have to think about things that register and that things things that are so good that you wait week to week. I know there's certain shows on television, even though they're on streamers, they they don't release them right away. Like, I'm a big fan of Succession. I watched it every Sunday as soon as I could. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I didn't watch it exactly when it was on, but I almost watched it was live. So if that can happen there, and it and it, and I know it happens on other network programming, but it can ha- it can still happen. And it's 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 a harder game. And you know, right now I think we're there is a recalibration of the industry going on. You know, there's a lot of things going on that are shaking up our industry. Not the least, uh, you know, the the, the writer strike, which is in, in the middle of, there was a recalibration going on before the writer strike was going on. So um, there's going to be some shifting and some changing, but you have to, you know, you have to think about what really registers. And, you know, much in the same way that, like, when, we, when we're thinking of selling something to a streamer, it's a different type of thing than when we're selling something to a broadcast network. To me, when I'm selling something to a streamer, I'm thinking about, can they generate heat? Can they generate subscribers where people will actually you know, love this so much that, they're, that it helps their subscription? I'm thinking less about ratings. And they're not the same thing because what you watch and what you pay for are, are, are different mm. things. It's kind of like the old days when HBO first started. You know, HBO, it wasn't TV, it was HBO. Remember that slogan? So, you know, they, they, had, they had things on there that were, that were so good that people were willing to, to pay whatever it was, that, you know, whatever the monthly fee was. And that included, you know, Mike, they had a deal with Mike Tyson. They had, you know, the, the Larry Sanders show with Gary Shandling and Dream On and, 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 and The Sopranos and Six Feet Under. And they were so such great content that people, you know, um, were were willing to pay, and that's it's a it's a higher bar and it's a different standard. And you know, sometimes if you have a really passionate audience about show, even though the numbers aren't that big from a broadcast network, you can sell it to a you can sell it to a streamer because that audience will just go. Sure. And and sure. and so it's it's. In the sales mentality and in the programming mentality, you have to think about who are our, who are our viewers or who are our subscribers and how do, how do we get to them? And um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting. And I've been around long enough to, as you've quickly pointed out how old I am. No, as I've been around, <laughs> no, I'm all good. I'm all good. Uh, not really. I'm around, I, I've been around long enough that, that uh, that I've seen it and it's been very interesting to me because I, I remember when we only had a few channels and they were black and white and I remember color TV, man, do I sound old. 
I sound old. Well, if if you want to be a mentor, you're gonna it's gonna you're gonna sound a little older when you're telling yeah, telling folks how to get. No, I, I so I you mentioned the writer strike. I, I actually I wanted to talk about this just a little bit because I you know I've I've talked to a lot of writers and uh and how they feel about things. I, I'm curious. You say there's a kind of a paradigm shift right now in the middle of or, or you know uh, what's happening with with that. Are you guys expecting more? series orders i mean i'm curious from your how that impacts your end of the business um you know for us honestly it's business as usual we're always developing we're always pitching and and i don't believe in pitching too often because i don't think it's i don't think it's realistic to walk into a network office if you've been in there the day before saying this is the greatest idea so you can only claim that every so often (laughs) maybe once a week but not every day so no so i'm kidding so, I mean, you really, so for us, it's business as usual. We're, like I said, we're always developing and always pitching and everything else like that. I haven't seen like a rush of business because of the, because of the writer's strike. Um, and I really want this thing to get solved as fast as possible. I don't like what it's doing to, um, you know, what it's doing to our or, uh, business. I, I, just, I just wish... That, and I know, I know there's some deal that there's some win-win deal that, that that's happened. Clearly, the, things have changed for the right for the writers, and I I um, I you know, I get it. I understand. You know what's happened with smaller orders, which I'm sure you've covered in your podcast. Uh, smaller orders and lack of back end, and all those things that weren't issues before, but that are now real issues now, and and uh, and people are making less, and that has to be fixed. It has to be straightened out, and and I know the studios are going through a difficult time and they have to get their act in together. And yes, there's pressures on costs and they have to get their act together. So, um, so at some point this will happen. But, I, but listen, the truth of the matter is, is if you're an unscripted producer, you're running a production company, so what? You pick up an extra show. So in the scheme of things, you may get one less order down the road. I just, I just really want, it, want us... I want the business to be back back together and have the normal flow of things. And and I know it will be someday. I just hope it's soon. Yeah. I mean, there's no, I think the last 20 some years have shown that there's no uh, reason that reality, apologies, quotation, <laughs> reality, alternative, whatever, uh, can't, can't coexist with scripted. I mean, that seems yeah. to seems to be working out, especially with the explosion of Channels and networks. I mean, you mentioned you touched on this very briefly, but I'm uh, I am I am again very curious about this new change and dynamic uh, in terms of um, you know the new the new distribution models as much as ever anything else because you know when you're making a show on network TV where one episode comes out a week and it's a competition style show or whatever it's very different than something like uh, the floor's lava which my kids love. Kids love Floors Lava. They're they're watching it all the time, but they watch it out of order. It doesn't right. matter to them. They'll they'll watch this episode or that episode. Um, how does that does that change how you are uh, thinking when you when you pitch it or when you produce it or or elsewhere? Or are you just like, all right, this is the show. Let's let's just do it this way. No, we're 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 thinking very carefully about about you know. Once again, it comes back to the audience, which is ultimately what's best for their business or subscribers. So. No, everything is when we develop a show, um, we really sit down and think about who it's right for, you know, and uh, and that has and that, you know, you're tailoring your shows to to the to the audience, uh, to the audience, you know. So 
It's very much in our thinking. And, and sometimes you develop a show that only works for one network or one platform because of who they are or what point they are in their history. So, um, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, listen, there's, there, we're constantly talking to them about what's working and we know what's working to a degree. Um, and uh, you know what I'm getting at. And, there's uh, a, there's a smile there. No, I, is this are it, do you are do you guys get frustrated by the lack of uh, information, data, whatever? Uh, do you do you wish you had that that whole tranche to really sift through and be like, this is what's working, this isn't? Well, more information is better, obviously, um, and 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 it is getting better. I mean, you know, when I we first started doing things for some of the streamers, and I won't mention which ones, but. Um, you know, it was harder to get information. It was harder to understand the algorithms that they were working with. But now, the, now they're pretty good. You know, we we do get, you know, weekly, monthly reports and stuff like that, and and you get a pretty good sense of it. Um, I'm laughing because I know it's a it's a common thing, you know, that that comes up. So, um, because there was a period of time when it was like uh, your show's not doing. What does that mean? And so, but I think I think that's I think that's more years ago than than what's what's happening right now. Um, but, but like I said, sometimes you, you have something that only works at one place and I'm okay with that. If it's the right show, like a lot of times producers, well, I'm not going to develop this cause it could only work at one place. I go, well, if it's the right thing, then you have a better chance of selling it. You know, if it's a great idea for one place, it may be better, better chance of selling it than a good idea that works for a number of places. And I believe good mm-hmm. ideas don't sell. I have the saying that I say around the office and just is to make a point. I say, good ideas don't sell. And great shows have a hard time selling. It's hard to sell shows. Very, very difficult. So unless you're walking into that pitch or getting on that Zoom, which we do more frequently, more frequently than I like, because I'd rather pitch in person. But the unless you're, like I said, doing your pitch with, oh, my God, this is in my bones. This is so exciting. I'm so passionate about it. Unless you have that feeling, you should not be pitching the show. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, 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 and, and by the way, even when you have that, it's hard to sell a show just is the, you know, the big thing with streaming right now, and you can see it is, and they know it, and this is, you know, this is kind of, this is not news, but the art shows work a lot better on streaming than the standalones. They just do, mm-hmm. um, you know, not, not counting floors lava, which, which was fun to do. And we're proud of it and had a few seasons and kids watch it again and they watch them out of order. And that works because of who the audience is. It's a family audience, but most of the stuff that works on Netflix you know, the love is blind and things like that are things that are arced because it's the same bingey kind of thing. It gets you to watch one and then another and then another because it's an arc show. That's not news, but uh, but you can see how that developed over time. Netflix, you know, even even there, are, you know, things like um, selling Sunset. That's that's an arc show. It's a it and, and you, but it, but it's evolved and and mm-hmm. um, it, it's it's. The, you know, Netflix is all about, and others are, are about completion. It's not just about, did you watch the show? Or did you watch the entire series? Did you get to the end of the series? And um, you, you have to sub something that teases well or that hooks you from one episode to another. And uh, it's not surprising. And um, that, you know, the shows that are working the best on Netflix are, are things that are art. And that's, that's where their focus is. All right, that was that was pretty much everything I wanted to ask. That was uh, everything I wanted to to touch on here. But I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If there's anything mm-hmm. you think folks should know, either about your book or the state of the industry. I mean, whatever whatever I failed to ask that you think folks should know. Uh, what was that? Um, 
we covered a lot of ground um, and I rambled a lot and I think we got most of it. I, I, I hope that our, the future of television for me or the future of content is networks taking risks. That to me is the best, the best thing. I believe we find our best hits or the biggest surprises or the, the most you know, successful franchises often come when we take chances. And there's a tendency to do things that are derivative or to tendency to do copycat shows. And my big push is always take a risk, take a chance. That's what Hell's Kitchen was. That's what Ninja Warriors. That's what Mass Singer was, you know, but that's what Seinfeld was. That was all in the family. And so we see this pattern of these breakthrough shows that were all big risks. But every so often, people get conservative and, and um, or people get nervous. And I, I, I just hope that our industry continues to take chances. That's what I and that's what I think the audience wants. I think the audience wants, wants a, a, a fresh point of view. Um, the other thing as it relates to my, my book is that, um, listen, there is a collection of stories that are in there. Magic Johnson, you, you brought up, and there's a story with Paul Allen and a crazy night with Marlon Brando that, that's nuts. And, and what Dwayne Johnson is really like and what Gordon Ramsay is really like and Simon Cowell and all these great people and some great everyday people who aren't famous um, that are in the book, but um, that, but, but I'm really hoping the book inspires people. It's really like I chose the stories, not because these are my biggest hits or these are my funniest stories, but they're within each of them, there was a message. And, and I, I'm, I'm really hoping it inspires people to take chances and, uh, and, and, you know, does some good in the world. And, so, but thank you for the time. It's been amazing. Absolutely. Uh, again, the name of the book uh, is Reach Hard Lessons and Learn Truths from a Lifetime in Television. Uh, I've been speaking to Arthur Smith, uh, who, again, just has a um, has has a really interesting and varied career through uh, throughout, you know, all all sorts of uh, types of TV eras. Of t- I mean, I, I, I learned a lot reading the book, which is the, the nicest thing I can say about uh, any, any book that I read is if I learn something, I'm, I'm, I feel like I've come out ahead of the game here. So, uh, it was, it was a, it's a fun read available at Amazon now and you're doing good again. You're helping a charity when you, when you buy a copy proceeds going right back into the community. So, um, that is great. Uh, Arthur, thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sonny. Uh, all right. Uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I'm the culture editor at The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood, uh, and I'm, uh, I will see you again next week. Mm-hmm.